And turn with me to John chapter number 10, John 10. And we're going to focus this morning on verse 11 through 21, really, really narrowing in on verse 11 through 18 this morning as we have been looking at Jesus and this illustration or this metaphor of shepherd and sheep. He continues on to elaborate on that in verse number 11 with another I am statement. And, and you can follow along and, and I'll just read it just to kind of set it in front of you so we can see what's going on and, and then we'll look at it uh, and walk through it together. The Bible says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I just tell you there's many passages of scripture. Maybe it is Psalms 23 that, uh, that is a favorite, beloved, but there is something special about what Jesus says here uh, to us this morning in John chapter number 10, and the way he says it. We're introduced to the writer of the 23rd Psalm as the eighth son of Jesse, which is not a particular uh, prominent place in a family, especially in the Old Testament days. And in fact, we know it's not prominent because when Samuel asked Jesse to bring your sons together, we're going to sacrifice in 1 Samuel 16, he brought all seven of his sons together, and they sat down, and Samuel says, which one am I going to anoint king? And he goes through the whole lot of them, and he has to ask Jesse, is this all your children? And Jesse said, oh yeah, there is the, the, the younger one out in the fields. Uh, he is keeping the sheep. That's why he's not here. Of course, we know that uh, Samuel says, we're not eating till you bring all of your sons, like I said in the first place, and so they brought him along. Uh, and it is fitting that we find David keeping the sheep. Not only is it fitting that we find him keeping the sheep, but to give such reflection uh, on shepherding that old occupation he once held as a young man and the faithfulness of God to him throughout his life. It is... Uh, Something that we see of what kind of shepherd David was as a young man in chapter 17 of First Samuel. No need to turn there. Just I'll, I'll read it for you. And, and any of you have heard the story of David and Goliath. You'll be familiar with these words. 
uh, as he was in the field keeping his father's sheep, we we read David's willingness and continual uh, effort of stepping in between danger and his sheep. In fact, when Goliath stands up and threatens the nation of Israel, David in all of his zeal says, I'm going to deal with this. I'll take care of it. Nobody else is going to take care of it. I'll take care of it. How dare he defy the name of God? You might recall Saul trying to talk him off the ledge. Don't do it, David. You're, you're a young guy. You're a kid. You're a baby. This guy's been training since he was, he was young. He is a warrior. And David's response was this, verse 34 and 35. Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock. And you, you would think, teenage boy, keeping sheep, lion, bear, what would follow next? You can have that one, just let me have myself and the rest of them. You know, just going about your way. This is what we read. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Isn't that just an awesome picture? Uh, Teenage kid keeping his father's sheep, stepping in between danger and the sheep, and so much so that he is... He, he killed the threat that stood against him. I almost wonder what it was like when he came home that evening from work and his father said, how was the day? And he's like, it wasn't that bad. Not going on until Lulu got attacked by a, by a lion. And, well, you know, one thing led to another. And you got any place I can put this rug? <laughs> well, that's the image we have that comes to mind in John chapter number 10. A shepherd who puts himself in harm's way for the life of the sheep. Uh, The security of the sheep is being referred to, which is the people of God, and John chapter number 10, rest in the competence, in the power, in the ability, in the affection of the shepherd. And so we begin verse number 11, rightfully so, with that designation of Jesus being referred to as the good shepherd. We could say Jesus is the strong shepherd. Jesus is a likable shepherd. Jesus is a a powerful or whatever you want to say, but there's something about this designation of him being referred to as good. He wants us to understand the character and the nature of this shepherd that is tending the sheep, and that is, namely, he is good. I want to take this section that I've read this morning and set before us and under two headings. That's kind of awkward for some of you, as it is for me. We're used to three points in a poem and we go home. I only have two, so that will be either shorter or longer. We'll just see how that pans out. But the first of which we see in this narrative, that is the security of the sheep. The security of the sheep the good shepherd provides, and the second is the success of the sheep, or the success of the shepherd, verse number 16. Now notice again with me, verse number 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, speaking of the character and the kind of shepherd Jesus is, he's elaborating on this this nature of, of him, his, his ability, his faithfulness to do the task God has appointed him to do. 
And he does so uniquely for us, as oftentimes the Word of God does, and sometimes we do that in teaching. When we begin to explain something, we set against what we're trying to describe the very opposite of that. And, and in that way, in that contrast of what a thing is by what a thing is not, we, we see a depth to it, and that's exactly what Jesus does in verses 12 and 13. When he says, the good shepherd is not a hireling. Now notice, or a hired hand, a hireling, King James Version. Verse number 12, 13. So what does it mean he is a good shepherd? Well, this is what it isn't. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And so far in John chapter number 10, we've seen reference to thieves and robbers and those who who have no legal right to the sheep. They have no purpose, no business being in among the sheep because they have not granted authority to come in and lead them out. They are they're seeking to destroy and harm the sheep. They have ill motives, selfish ambitions, and cruelty in their actions. It's what you see beginning in John chapter number 10 when he speaks about the hireling and the robber who comes in another way or a thief in verse number 10 coming to steal and kill and destroy. In verse number 12, he picks up another character for us in contrast to Jesus or in contrast to the Messiah or the good shepherd. He says he's, he's not a hired hand. A hired hand would be someone who was paid to, to watch the sheep. So there is some legal right that he has to be among the sheep and to care for the sheep. It's just that he is motivated by the same thing that the robber and the thieves are motivated for, and that is self-interest. He has no stock in them. There's no skin in the game for him. His main concern is himself and how he's getting along in the process. We may know people like that. Maybe in many of you have worked with people like that. They're not they don't care about the mission. They don't care about the job or the, the, uh, what is needed to be done in the process of work. They just care about the bottom line, which is themselves. And he says, this is the hired hand. He is, not, he is not in it for the sheep. He has no care for the sheep. He is someone who is motivated by greed. And the reason is, in verse number 12, notice a hired hand or a hireling, which is someone who does not own the sheep. They're not his. doesn't care if they're lost, if a bear comes, a wolf comes, a, if a lion comes. It's, no, it's nothing out of his pocket. He doesn't care. He still gets paid. He's paid by the job, paid by the air, or whatever it may be. They're not his. Because they are not his, he says in verse number 13, he cares nothing for the sheep. Well, there is some sobriety to those who desire to be a minister in any fashion over the flock of God. I just say this because it's worth saying, and, and it's a warning that Peter gives to ministers in any kind of fashion like that, First Peter 5, and you can read that in your own spare time as he speaks to the under-shepherds over God's flock. Primarily here, however... Whether he's got some Pharisees or scribes in mind or other leaders in Jerusalem, 
may or may not be necessary. What is sufficient to understand is he is setting in front of us one who cares nothing for the sheep, who has no interest into the sheep as, as a contrast to the true and the good shepherd who has all interest in the sheep. And we see that here, don't we? In the preceding verse, verse number 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. What kind of interest does he have in the sheep? Well, he has the interest that it is his sheep. That's what he's saying in verse number 14. He's saying much more than that, but he is at least saying that the sheep are his. Not somebody else's. He's not just put there temporarily and and, and then he'll do his time and whatever the case may be. They are his sheep, he says. He knows his own and his own know me. We saw this earlier in John chapter number 6 and verse number 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. His sheep are those whom the Father has given to him, and those whom the Father has given to him will come to him, and he will never cast out because they're his sheep. That's what he's saying, at least. We see the same thing written by Paul later on. In Titus 3.14, he is purifying himself of people. And what kind of people? The people of his own possession. His interest, his care for the sheep is is in relationship to his ownership of the sheep. They belong to him. In fact, we see that in many of the illustrations of the church as it's referred to as the bride of whom? It's his bride, his body. And we could go on and and speak about the union and all of those things reminding us that his interest is is there because he, he owns the sheep. They belong to him and he to them. And he makes that clear again in verse number 14 as he speaks about this ownership of the sheep. He, he says as he elaborates, he knows them. I know my own and my own know me. And what do we make of that? As he's just simply saying, I know how many sheep I have. I know the number of them. I know the brand that they all have on them. And I'm sure a faithful uh, sheep shepherd and, and had a flock I'm sure he knew those things Job knew uh, how much uh, animals and livestock he had is he saying I know the breed of the sheep if there is different kind of breeds that goes as far as my knowledge of sheep or is he saying something else and I think this is very important for us To say he knows his sheep is to highlight the reality of that intimate fellowship between the shepherd and the sheep. He knows them, not just the facts about them, not just just some random things that you can get off Google or off uh, off a information sheet, but he knows them intimately. There's a relationship, there's a reality that he knows all about them. They're in They're in fellowship with him. In fact, this knowledge comes from the reality that he loves his sheep. A knowledge which is produced by the love that he has for those whom the Father will give him. I want you to think about how he magnifies this in verse number 15. It's almost to say, you want to know what that looks like. I'll show you what it looks like. Which, When he shows us what it looks like, 
uh, it just blows my mind, and maybe it will yours as well. He speaks about this, I know my own, my own know me. And, and so we, we're kind of wondering, what do you mean by that? And, and he says in verse 7, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now he's not saying because the Father knows all the facts about me. He knows how tall I am. He knows how much I weigh. He knows how many hairs are on my head. He knows all this other stuff like that. I know the Father. I know all the attributes of God. And I know all the inner workings. I know how he created everything. He's not speaking about that. He's speaking about that intimate relationship, that fellowship between the Father and Son. He says, you want to know what it looks like between the shepherd and the sheep? Look at the relationship between the Father and the Son. And if you're in Christ, that ought to blow your mind away. To be loved, to be thought of, to be cared about, to be considered in such an intimate and overwhelming way where the shepherd says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Why does he love them like that? Well, it goes back to verse number 37 of John chapter 6. Because the Father has given them to him and the Father loves him. I was just thinking that powerful reality and truth what if the world was against you what if everything in your world fell apart and we're still reminded even if that were possible even if any of us was to live in that moment right now then nothing can separate us from the love of God and the reality that he knows his sheep a stubborn relentless bishop of Alexandria held his ground against Arian doctrine. Uh, this is after the Nicene Creed went and, uh, and Arianism, which believed that Jesus was one of the first created beings. He was a creature. He was not God. He was God with a small g. It's the, it's the antiquity of Jehovah's Witness in modern day time, which is a heresy, by the way, in case you've ever struggled with that. Uh, it is unbiblical. And so... Uh, many emperors were sympathetic to Arians wanting to uh, bring them into the church and he stood his ground. No, (laughs) they're heretics and the doctrine will stay out with them. They can come in without it. And one, after being excommunicated several times because of this, one of, uh, someone came to him, a man came to him at one point and said, Athanasius, the world is against you. Well, what do you do when the world is against you? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. I love his reply and his stubbornness. Well, then Athanasius is against the world. That sounds heroic, and it is heroic in some sense. But it brings us back to the practical implications that no matter what lot in life we've come to, whatever place we're in in this life at this moment, That if every relationship fell apart, that this one truth ought to give us enough courage and encouragement and warmth when we consider that he knows his sheep. And nothing will sever that knowledge and love of the shepherd and his sheep. We'll speak about, we'll look at that more next week when we consider no one able to take us out of the Father's hands. Isn't that one of the greatest blessings we can ever fathom? To be known by Jesus. And one of the greatest curses and dreads to not be known by him. 
In fact, we know this in Matthew 7, 24, as he comes to the end of that monumental passage of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he's really getting into the, <clears throat> to the decision hour, or whatever you want to call it, and he says, there will be a group of people who will stand up in the last day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And yet Jesus responds to them as is an echo of horror. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus is not saying I never knew what you did. He's not saying I never knew your deeds or I never knew your heart. Evidently, he did know their deeds and he did know their heart because he claimed or he accused them of being workers of lawlessness, but he did not love them. He did not know them in the same way he knows his sheep. He did not hold them in love and in security because they were not his. What comfort there is to be known by him. But how do we know that we know him? He gives us something of that here. We see in verse number 16, he lays down his life for the sheep. They will listen to my voice. Verse number 16, he will bring them out and they will listen to his voice. Are you following Jesus now? Are you following the shepherd? Has there been a moment when you heard the voice of the shepherd through the giving of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, where he says to forsake your sins and run to him? Have you listened to that voice? Have you followed him? Do you know his voice? Have you ever heard the call to turn and trust him wholly and to follow him? But not only does he know his sheep, Notice with me, as he provides security for his sheep, his love for his sheep, it produces really what is the theme of this entire passage, and that is it is found in the laying down his life for the sheep. Notice back in verse number 11, and the good shepherd, the good shepherd, how does he define him? Well, he's the one who lays down his life, puts his life on the line for the sheep, steps in between danger, harm's way in the sheep to defend the sheep. Verse number 15, again, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life, for who? It's the sheep that laying down. Verse number 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse number 18, really the whole verse. <clears throat> no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who's in control? Isn't that what you want to say after you read that? He's not speaking if danger comes, he will step out. He's prophesying the already, his, already, his intention, his direction, what will come about. He will face danger for the sake of the sheep. It's not if something might happen. He is, he is really preparing his own disciples if they should listen. And he is telling the leaders who will lead him off and, and seek to crucify him. We'll crucify him out of malicious intent that all of this will be done because I laid down my life. That authority that he demonstrates. In fact, at the cross we see that the reality of God's judgment on sin clearly that we see sinful men's rejection of their creator and Israel of their Messiah. 
But the evening they took him to trial. What do you see in the garden? Jesus out of great agony and pain. Moving forward to lay his life down in the words, not my will, but thine be done. And he told his disciple, don't you know I could stop this at any moment? Everything that will proceed from that moment that they take him and try him and murder him, abuse him and all that they will do him. All of that he had the ability to say no enough and yet he willingly laid down his life. And gave it for the sheep. You see that even on the cross when he cried out, it is finished and into your hands I commit my spirit. Not only does he lay down his life for the sheep as if danger comes and the danger destroys him and kills him and the sheep are left without a shepherd and in harm's way again. We read in verse number 18, not only does he lay down his life Of his own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. We will never be without. The good shepherd. And I want you to notice. As we consider. This life. Of laying down. And taking up. It's intentional. It's sacrificial. And what we've already spoken about. He's done it in that way. But it's intentional. Verse number 15, he reminds us why is he laying his life down. He's laying it down for the sheep. He's not aimlessly going to the cross with some kind of hopeful wish, this last shot across the bow that maybe this will work. He's going with confidence, with determination that what he is doing will, will be successful, that it will be of purpose. And he mentions the purpose here for the sheep. Those whom the Father has given to him. Now I know we speak about the death of Christ in general terms. The Bible does that in several places. In the beginning of John 1.29. John the Baptist crying out. As he saw Jesus coming towards him and said. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Or 1 John 2.2. He is the propitiation for our sins and for Uh, Not for ours only, but also the sin of the world. There's the language of broadness or general terms when we speak about the death of Christ. But but Christian, uh, if you read anything in the context of what he's saying here, he leaves us with the reality that we're not speaking in broad brushstrokes. He wants us to have the courage and the confidence that Christ died for his sheep. Purpose and intent. Not in generalities, but clearly asserting that he lays his life down in this manner to secure and save the flock. It is purposeful. And think of how it works in our own life. Jesus died and bore the wrath of God for your sins, not hypothetical. To secure you, to forgive you, to redeem you, your condemnation, and it was his body. Your trouble, and yet he gives us his peace. How very personal and intimate are we to look at the cross of Christ as a believer? How powerful as we consider him securing 
and sustaining us through his sacrifice. And you may ask this morning, what if I'm not a sheep? You speak that he laid down his life for his sheep. What if I'm not a sheep? Then I would say the gospel calls you to come and put your faith and trust in Christ. And the very fact, the very proof that there is people in this room who has sinned just as terrible as you or even worse from a human standpoint and God has forgiven them and restored them and brought them in, healing them, should give you the courage and confidence that if any would come to him, he would never cast out. But that he would cleanse you and receive you. And so we see the security the shepherd provides for his sheep. And I want you to notice well, a little briefer the success of the shepherd found in verse number 16. Let me read it for you. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, they say on a tombstone in England at Westminster Abbey where the remains of a missionary and explorer David Livingston rest, save his heart, which was buried in Africa somewhere, are the words of John ten sixteen. The very motivation of his life and his mission endeavors and all that he did with this reality that he has other sheep and he must go. The mission movement... Saw the dent, has saw the daunting task, continually the daunting task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet we are to do so. The church is to do so. And those whom we support in sin are to do so with confidence that God, uh, that Christ will build his church and that he has sheep he must bring in also. Other sheep he must bring in also out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you believe that? When you read Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 and it gives us a future picture of, of the nations gathered around the throne, do you believe that? In essence, missions is just that endeavor, just that, that effort to, to, to see that come to pass through the power and the work and the means which God has given to us. And here in Jesus' language to these Jewish leaders is saying out of Jerusalem, out of the Jews, I am calling my sheep into into a flock or into a fold. And there's other sheep that I have that I'm calling. Now, some have looked at this. Well, maybe he's speaking about the dispersia, those who were far off out of every out of every tribe. He would bring them in the Jews from far and wide. And I think that would be wrong. I think what he's speaking here is the Gentiles. In fact, what you find in chapter number 12, this anticipation as the Greeks come seeking Jesus, he tells them at that moment, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. And how is he glorified? Well, he's glorified by the nations coming before him, laying down their idols and sticks and rocks and all the other things that they've worshipped and to worship him as creator and Lord and put their faith and trust in him, finding life in him alone. In fact, Piper says this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that missions exist because worship 
doesn't. But he doesn't send his apostles on a hope so mission. Or, or, or a last ditch effort to see if this is going to work out. And in some ways it's hard for us to wrestle with the language here because of, of what it's saying. The, the idea that Christ knows those who belong to him. They're his sheep. He speaks of that ownership. Yet the nation still lay in darkness and paganism. How does that all work out? I mean, notice verse number 6. I have other sheep. They, they are his sheep. I have them. They're not of this fault. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one ship. How does that all work? Well, it can only work and it can only be true as we consider the eternal purpose and will of God that he has decreed from the foundation of the world. You say that's hard to understand. There's an element of mystery in there. I get it. In one sense, we're not to peer into those things God has not revealed to us. In another sense, we're, we're to work and serve and minister with the courage that he has other sheep. He must bring them in and they will listen and they will come. It's not futile to share the gospel or spread the message of Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, the clarity of this. In verse number 16, again, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. The Father will give them to him. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's something worth to be said here that this does not eliminate the need to go. In fact, what I think it does, it is encourages, it fuels the church's mission to share the gospel not only to the people in your family, but in your neighbors, but across the world because God will guarantee its success. I have, they will. I have, I must, they will. But it also reminds us that in order to hear the voice of the shepherd, It takes the church and the people of God, the sheep, the flock of God, to declare the voice of God. In fact, we have all of our talents and we have all of our giftedness and resources and all the energy that we spend, whether it's at the ministry center or whether it's in our missionaries around the world, and we do all of this tirelessly but we do that with a confidence that God will work through his word he will accomplish its purpose and people come here from all over the world as we know people from Hungary and people from Alaska and even Texas <laughs> and Tennessee <laughs> they come from all over the world some of those in need of rest and encouragement, some of those in crisis of faith, some of those without faith, others in times of exhaustion. And you ask yourself, and when you think about that, what can we do with such a diversity of need and and all that's going on with the people that come, what can we do? Well, we can do what we do do. It almost come out wrong. 
we give them the word of God so that they might hear the voice of their shepherd. And through teaching and setting before them the gospel and the truths which flow out of that and over and over, it's the sharing of the word of God. It is the word of God that, that does the heavy lifting. In fact, Paul says some plant and some water, but who gives the increase? God gives the increase. We're instruments, yet it is God who gives the increase. We are known that. In fact, we have a couple of people from our church going out to Glens Falls after church this afternoon, about 2 o'clock, you can be praying for them to hand out tracts and, and to give, uh, give the gospel, hopefully have gospel conversations, share the word of God with people. Pray for them. It takes courage to do that. It takes determination. It takes a willingness to be, uh, to be taken wrong. But it also takes a confidence that what you're sharing and what you're giving will do the work. Because the practical side of this is found in Romans 10, in verse number 14 and 15, how are they going to hear the voice of their shepherd? How are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. I'll say all that to say this, that the shepherd and is laying down his life and bringing it back up, secured the success of his calling his sheep unto himself until one day that one fold and that one shepherd will unfold in that vision we find in the book of Revelation 5 and 7, worshiping him, saying you are worthy to break the seals because you have redeemed out of every tongue, tribe, and nation for yourself with your own blood. That's encouragement to us. That's encouragement to you. That reality that, that God is not done. He's continuing to save people and bring people out of darkness into light. And as you minister to your family, your community, and around the world, it gives us hope in the gospel. Not hope in people. But it gives us hope in the gospel. This is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's the security that what secures and redeems and calls out. But it gives us courage. And it gives us determination that you and I are not on a futile campaign. He will secure, secure the success of his work, of his labor. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that we've gathered together. What a, a joy to be reminded of our good shepherd. We see such great humility when we think about him lowering himself, becoming the form of a servant and humbling himself even unto death. And yet what resolve and what love, knowing that this was the case because he was willing to lay aside and he was willing to lay down. And Father, I pray if anyone here does not know you because they don't know Christ, I pray that even, even through the sermon, through the word of God that was read today and the words that were said, that you would draw them. Let them hear the shepherd's voice. Come unto me, all ye labor, may be laden and give them rest. Father, let that be the case. And Father, I pray for all of us here, each of us, your people, your children, your sheep, that you would, you would again stir our hearts with great affection, care, with delight and worship, with the reality 
of who our great shepherd is and the security he provides for us in his name. Amen.